Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days Just representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives Today's show with Kara Woody is so special Kara is someone who is not only running with multiple sclerosis, which is an enormous accomplishment, but she is excelling with multiple sclerosis. It's an absolutely incredible story. She just finished up the Boston Marathon a few days ago. I could not wait to talk to her before we do. And this is a really, really important episode. Uh, But I do want to say we're heading out to Eugene Marathon. I'm flying out in 16 hours. I cannot wait Got live shows Friday night at 6.30 with Peter Bromka. That's going to be at Run Hub Northwest, a specialty shoe store in downtown Eugene. Then on uh, Saturday morning, we got a 9.30 a.m. shakeout run over at Pre's Trail. That's right, Steve Prefontaine, his trail. Gosh, I can't wait for that. So that's at 9.30 a.m. Then three straight live shows, 12.30, 1.30, and 2.30. And this is going to be so much fun. This is all going to be at... Theo's Coffee House. That's a quarter mile from the expo in downtown Eugene. They have a great little stage there for traditionally for live music. It's going to be all us. I cannot wait for this. And um, they're actually they're staying open late. So basically, they normally close at one. They're going to stay open for us. It's going to be so much fun. Please come down and check it out. The first live show is with Andy Wacker. It's at twelve thirty. 1.30, we have three people who've been on the show before, which is fun. Uh, Teresa Haley, Jenny Donnelly uh, Grimshaw, and Carly Gill LaProy. So all three of them have been on the show before. They have also qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon for 2020. And we're going to talk about how they're going to try to do that again, potentially, with the harder, um, the harder standard for 2024. And then at 2.30, we got Carrie Dimoff. Someone who podiumed at the California National Marathon at age 38, ran 229 in the marathon. She also has two kids. She works a full-time job and is a pro runner. It's a lot lot on your plate, no question about it. But she's doing it and doing it so very well. Uh, And I can't wait to talk to her. But let me just give a little shout-out. Andy Wacker, he is somebody who I've kind of been polling my rambling runner friends and listeners. Like, hey, do you know who Andy Wacker is? So many people unaware. Well, let me tell you, this guy is incredible. Okay. First of all, he's one of the best runners in the United States. So he may be underneath your radar because he is a trail runner who specializes in sub ultra trail running. So for so many people you see, you know, for trail running, usually it's the trail ultra runners that get a lot of the publicity and understandably so. It's awesome. Those people are doing amazing things and I love following them. Andy is not really in that genre per se, but he is absolutely incredible. So go check out Andy Wacker. All right. He's going to be trying to get the um, the Olympic standard in the marathon. The guy who's traditionally on the trails. So that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. That conversation is going to be so much fun to the point where I'm actually going to read a recent Instagram post that he had basically to show you how awesome Andy Wacker is. So it was basically a, 220, uh, it was a 2021 recap post, which really says it all. I'm going to skip the first paragraph, dive right into paragraph two. I represented USA and placed second in the Xterra Trail World Championships, placed third at the Berkey Trail Half. Let's see here. Second. No, yeah. 
No, hold on. Yep. Third at Broken Arrow, 26K. He has like the medals there. Not that he doesn't actually say the number. Then third again at the Golden Gate Trail Classic. He raced some of the best downhills of his life. Ran my first Cirque Series. Um, doubled at GoPro Games and won a race at 10,000 feet. I ran all my fastest times ever for 15K, 45.25 on a windy day. Set 14 FKTs as fastest known times. I'm not going to read all of them. There's too many. That's how awesome this guy is. He ran 28 miles at six-minute pace at 5,500 feet of elevation. But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. He dealt with pain, injury, frustration, balancing work, race, cancellations, sickness, and much more. And spent four months without running at all. That's right. He did all of that and spent a third of the year without running, found a new joy in biking a mountain rose in Colorado. And here's to a smoother 2022. Who doesn't want to hear from that guy? So come check it out, 12.30 p.m. at Theo's Coffee, and then we'll get into the other two live shows right after that. But right now, let's hear from the amazing Kara Woody. All right, Kara Woody is here. Kara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Matt. It's an honor to be here. It is an honor to have you here. This is so exciting. You've done some amazing things, and I just can't wait to talk about all of them. But most recently, you just completed Boston, so congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You had some very get-psyched pictures coming out of Boston. You seemed (laughs) like you were amped. Yeah, I had a really, really good time that it was... It was a very memorable experience. So my ninth marathon, my probably my favorite. So, um, yeah, the pictures were pretty much exactly how I was feeling. They they very good job. They do photographers do a good job um, capturing the moment and that, especially the finish line. That was exactly how I was feeling. Full of energy, really happy, just not wanting it to end. Which is a remarkable turnaround because it's not like you hadn't run a marathon in a while. Yes, I had run one six weeks before, actually, and then I'd run Boston in October before that. So it was nothing trains you for a marathon like running a marathon. Yeah. Why not do it six weeks before? So let's we're we're gonna kind of do some little reverse chronological. We're gonna go a little journalism style here. We're gonna reverse chronological in, in the way we're gonna approach some of this. So let's talk about the race six weeks ago. So what prompted you? You qualified for Boston at Boston in the fall. So to walk me through the process of deciding when to run, why to run, how to approach the spring the way you did. Well, so when I ran Boston in October, I had not done a marathon since other than virtual Boston, which was sort of a fun jaunt through Virginia Beach for me. Um, I hadn't done a race, an actual race setting since 2018 when I qualified the first time. So... um I really wanted to race Boston in uh, in the fall because I hadn't run one and I wanted to train hard. Um, so, so that th- so I had a, a goal time in mind, which I didn't meet when I ran Boston in the fall. I I requalified. I wouldn't say it was a terrible race, but it wasn't the race that I necessarily wanted or thought I was in shape for. So that's why I decided to run uh, Newport News One City in March, at the beginning of March. I chose it because I thought it would be an easier course and it would be better weather. I was right about the course being easier. I was wrong about the weather. So it was I'll awesome. tell you what, we we need to do I'll tell you, we need to interview on this show 
the running karma gods. Yeah. Seems like every time people try to like game the system with the karma gods, they're like, no, no, no. Oh no, 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 no. We're not gonna we're not gonna let that stand. So it ended up I ended up racing I ended up turning around from racing in October to racing in March. Uh, I got basically almost the exact same time. The race was much, <laughs> the race went much better as far as how I felt. I adjusted. I was very smart. The weather was terrible. There were 20 mile per hour headwinds the entire way. It was the first oh, warm God. day since the fall. It was humid. It was up to close to 70 by the end. And, you know, we'd been running in 10, 15 degrees all through the winter. So uh, I had many thoughts about just not doing it, but I was pretty stubborn. I had run the same race a few years prior and completely fallen apart. And I wanted a second try to prove that I could adjust and I could be smart. So I, I went for it and I don't regret it. I don't, and I qualified it for 23 there for Boston. So, uh, but Boston in April was always supposed to be about having fun for me. I was never planning on racing it. Uh, you know, I, my coach is James McCurdy. I know a frequent guest on your podcast. He would never let me race two marathons so close together. <laughs> yes, it's not, this is not James's bag. That is for sure. Well, let's, 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 first of all, let's, let's say your age, because, and this is one thing that we've had a lot of feedback on with the show. It's like, hey, sometimes we don't talk about age on the show, but especially when it comes to BQs, I think people want to, you know, they, they know how their age stacks up with BQ time. So we'll talk about, like, you know, you've been around the, the 332, 330 range, 333 range the last couple marathons. So what's your age and what's the BQ time for that? And I know this, I hate asking people their age. I'm, I feel so awkward right now, even bringing this up, but I think it does help people. It I don't. It does not bother me at all. I mean, anyone could look up my race time and know my age, uh, but I'm 41. I just turned 41 in March. Okay. So my BQ time is a 340 now. So, um, so it's a it's a it's a pretty good buffer uh, for me. The the times. And I we'll just, talk about buffers a little later and how how important they could be. <laughs> you know this well as anybody. Yeah, I mean the buffers. Yeah, and I had there's the. I definitely have the store. I've definitely been affected by the buffer that definitely happened to me in the fall. So, uh, yeah. So, so the, so the times are, are, I am happy with the marathon times. I, I just, I envision myself running. I have been in shape now running close to down in the three twenties for a while. I just haven't been able to make the day happen. So that's sort of what I'm chasing right now. And I've not, I'm putting marathons to bed at least until 23 for now, but that's, that's the goal that I've been, that I was chasing after in the fall and in March. So not, not quite there yet, but that's okay. That's what keeps us coming back. Well, let's talk about as Newport news was, was, was creeping up and you start seeing weather and you know, you live not far, I mean, relatively yeah. speaking yeah, a from, from where this race yeah. is. Yeah. So like, you know, you were well aware of what the weather could be. Tell me about just the potential options that were running through your mind as you started to see like, oh, my gosh, like things are really going to be coming against me here in terms of like having the kind of not race day experience because everything is relative and you can run a great race. And who cares what the time is? Like you said, you're running in 20 mile an hour winds. You know, this affects every runner at every level, right? Even 100 meter, even the 100 meter dash, like they have a wind gauge, right? So this happens to everybody. But with this idea of a certain time as the carrot that's been laying out there, did you ever, you know, potentially, you know, do an audible here and say, hey, I'm already running Boston. Why not just, you know, why not gun it six weeks from now instead of instead of today? So I, 
I thought about that, but a couple of reasons that that wouldn't have worked for me. I, I actually, my thought was to try to run Shamrock, uh, which was a couple of weeks later and in the same general area. It was fully, it was a full, it was booked. I mean, it was full at the time, but I, I know some people and they thought they could get me in. So that was the, the, that was where I was considering going for a little while until I just decided, I mean, I don't know. It's sort of like the enemy, you know, I mean, I knew what I was getting into with Newport News. I didn't have any idea what Shamrock would be like in two weeks. I was trained and I was ready. I didn't want to have to do some kind of crazy reverse taper kind of situation. So, um, but Boston was, I, I was running Boston with my husband he was as my support runner and and we can get into that too about why that why I have a support runner for Boston cuz that's kind of a long story but um so I was committed to running Boston uh with my husband as my support runner at around 4 hours because uh, that's around when my husband runs a marathon. So that's why I would never have considered bailing and just doing Boston in that case. So that Boston was already decided it was always going to be a fun run for me uh, for this this spring. So let's talk about that because you're someone who's very driven. You work very hard. You race hard. It, you you express it well in in your in the way you write about your races. And uh, I've always enjoyed reading them. And oh, thank you. let's talk about what that was like running running an iconic race like Boston, one that you've been thinking about for a while, one that you have history with, and running it in a way that is, uh, I guess, just different than you normally approach uh, a race day. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really awesome. I thought, why am I not doing this more? Um, when I pitched this idea to James back in the fall, he was on board immediately. He thought this would be a great experience for me to run Boston with my husband at a slower pace without all the worries that I usually have. Um, and, you know, he was right. It was it was a great experience. I loved everything about I didn't I wasn't stressed before the race I wasn't so worried about what I ate and how I slept and how much I walked and all the other things that always run through my head because I'm so particular about my pre-race stuff my you know race morning stuff I mean I was the most relaxed I've ever been my husband was more more stressed than I was, which never happened. I was going to ask you, who was supporting who in this scenario? I know, it I seems know. like this was like a, a codependency. <laughs> it was a co- Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, just being out there, too. I, I mean, you know, we, we started and, you know, I wasn't so worried about, oh, we're on the downhill. Like, I have to hold back. I have to do this. I have my... Speedless, I, whatever you want to run too fast for you, let's just let you do you, you know. So we went flying down the hill at much faster pace than you know my husband should have been going, but it was fine. I mean, I was fine. So you know, we saw Spencer the dog. I stopped. I knocked over some TV reporters to get a picture with him. You know, my husband ran on. I ran. I caught him because you know he a full, did, a full contact Boston uh, Marathon. All I, right. d- I dove under an interview, a TV interview in progress to pet that dog. <laughs> Nobody was stopping me from getting my selfie with Spencer. Um, I'm sorry. I'm here for the dog. Uh, but I mean, I stopped in a porta potty. I would never do that in a regular race. But I'm like, you know what? I drank a little bit too much water. I feel like stopping. So I stopped, you know, uh, just stuff I would never, ever consider doing. I, I, I zigzagged all over the 
course to high five little kids that looked cute or to punch power up signs. I randomly, I go to punch a power, you know, punch here for power. I look up at the person holding it and it's a friend of mine that had since moved away and lived in Alabama who was up there spectating. It was the craziest thing. Threw my arms around her, screamed and yelled. I mean, all this stuff that when I'm racing, I don't even see people around me, you know? People can be yelling my name. I know in October when I ran Boston, literally my friend's parents were yelling my name and I didn't even see them. I ran right past them because I'm in the zone, you know? I was so out of the zone in this race. It was so beautiful. I mean, I, I sprinted up to the top of Heartbreak Hill. I turned around backwards to cheer for my husband to run up the hill. I mean, I'm sure people around me were either super annoyed or just thought I had gone completely crazy. So, this sounds like you were like on a four hour like adrenaline hit. It was so great. I, I didn't want the race to end. And I'm sure that sounds crazy because, I mean, I'd been running for over four hours. But when we made that right turn onto Hereford and the left onto Boylston, I was sad. I didn't want my fun to end. I was having so much fun. And what, what time did you guys come in? Uh, 4.09 and change, I think, was what it ended okay. up being. Yeah, um, so you're talking about, you know, like 9.10, 9.15 pace or so. So how does that align with like your your normal easy pace days? So that's about what I would do. I, I love my easy pace days. I mean, I, I'm not a type of runner that runs my easy paces too fast. I, I'll cruise along at 9.30. I'm perfectly happy chatting whatever. So yeah, it's, that's about, I mean, you know, nine to nine thirty is usually what I do. My easy pace runs at when I'm marathon training. Well, it sounds like you had a blast. The pictures, like I said, were fantastic and we're definitely going to use at least one of these for the <laughs> podcast graphic. So if some of you said, see the podcast graphic, that's where it's from. Um, and you have some other really good pictures too. The me versus me pictures from, uh, from the fall were really, really good. Yeah. Um, from October. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about why you had a support runner. Yes. Okay. So, and I'm glad we're talking about this because. I really want to give this program a lot of press because I feel like a lot of people don't know about it, and including myself. Uh, so this is a semi-long story, but back for October for 2021, when so I qualified for 20 and I was in the race, and then of course COVID happened, it got canceled, and then it became virtual. So then when we all went to apply for 21, the field size, as everyone knows, was cut down to 20,000. So the buffer that you needed was over seven minutes. And I missed that cutoff by 20 seconds to get into Boston in October 21, initially. Of course, I was devastated, I you know, because I was in the 2020 race. It was my first Boston uh, had a little cry, kind of picked myself up, came up with a new plan. I'd already registered. Can we, can we linger there for a second? Can we yeah. linger there? Because the people in your, in this pool, right, the people who got into 20 and then missed because of the buffer in 21, a lot of people who were in that grouping, no matter their age, were really, really upset. Like, I had a lot of people who wanted to come on the show and just basically blast BAA. Like, I want to come on and I have a bone to pick. And, I, hey, I had 
I have full empathy for their position. I've never been in that position. I've never qualified for Boston. But I was like, oh, my, I, can, I can imagine the heartbreak. You're working, working towards this for so long. How frustrating, right? Especially for maybe a first-time qualifier, like how, how devastating that would be. So can you just talk about that experience? Because I know it was one that a lot of people really struggled with and took personally. And just it was a, it was a heartbreaking moment for some people. Yeah, it was really tough because I was like many people. I didn't qualify for Boston the first time I ran a marathon. I, I tried at it for a long time. I qualified on my, let's see, I think it was maybe my fourth marathon that I did. Um, so it took a while and it took a lot of training. So, you know, and at the time they had just lowered the qualifying times by five minutes, you know, we all thought all we have to do is just get it because they just took the qualifying times down by five minutes. And I crossed that finish line in 2018 in Richmond. And I thought I had it in the bag. You know, I, I had a, you know, 332 and change at that time. And my time was, um, a 330, a 335 at that time, because that was, I was 39, I was going to be 39 with all the COVID I actually aged up, which was even crazier. But then to have that time, even with an extra five minutes, because I turned 40, not be enough for 21 was just, first of all, it was just mind blowing. Like, how can, how can seven minutes not be enough, you know, by 20 seconds? I, I mean, I, I remember I was sitting in the car when the, when the announcement was made about the buffer and I was doing math in my head really fast. And I just realized, oh my God, I have missed it by 20 seconds. And I had a very good friend that I had trained with for the BQ times. She got in by like 12 seconds and I had gotten out by 20 seconds. She was crying. She said, I don't want to go without you. We were supposed to do this together. I mean, it was, it was an emotional, it was an emotional roller coaster, especially once I had finally, after several days of being very, very sad you know, had decided I was moving on. I was going to qualify by even more. You know, I had a conversation with James about it. He's like, that's fine. We'll just run faster. You're faster now. This is not a big deal. We'll run a race in the fall. You'll qualify. You'll be in next year. You know, so I had registered for wine glass. I was moving on. I was, I was upset, but I was, I was, you know, I was moving on. I, I had, I had accepted it. Uh, and then that's when, James called me one day and probably a week after I'd registered for wine glass. And he said, how bad do you want to go to Boston? And I said, well, where is this conversation going, James? Because <laughs> right. I know we you have, have lots that, of magical that, that question, powers. But... That question needs a question response. No one just answers that question on, on, when they answer the phone. I'm like, uh, I, I felt like I, I took a very long time to answer. And I said, well, of course I want to go to Boston, but I'm not going to Boston. Remember, I missed it by 20 seconds. And he said, well, you know, Heather, his wife, Heather McCurdy, remembered that there's this program that the BAA has uh, called the Adaptive Athlete Program. And she thought, knowing my journey with multiple sclerosis, uh, that I could potentially qualify for it. So he said, I made some calls. I called some people I know at the BAA. See, at this time, the registration had closed for the program because public registration was over. 
And he said, so I made some calls to see if they would be interested in you because as a traditional qualifier, he wasn't sure if I, if they would want someone that was a traditional qualifier. So he found out that they, in fact, did not care about that at all. They, you know, were happy to have me. They actually ended up issuing a special invitation since registration had already closed, but they had spots. So I was actually admitted through the adaptive program. and. So the adaptive program, and this is something I really want to make sure we get out to your listeners in case they are under this category or they know somebody that's under this category, is something that the BAA created. I don't know the exact year. It was several years back. It's, um, and I looked this up so I wouldn't mess it up before, before. it's, it is a program that is a permanent if you have a permanent physical, intellectual, or visual impairment that greatly impacts your running, this this program could qual- could apply to you. And the BAA, if you look it up, they have they have it on their website a list of all the conditions that apply. And you, of course, have to have doctor you have to have doctor verification and all of that. But um, it c- covers things like autism. Of course, um, this is where you see the visually impaired runners. This is what they're running, what program they're running under with their guide runners. But it also covers mobility disorders like multiple sclerosis being one of the bigger ones. A lot of the adaptive athletes that I met, that was something that they they had. So that and that's what I have and have had since 2010. So and that is out there for people. The qualifying times, you do have to have a qualifying time. You can't, you have to have had run a marathon, but the qualifying times are much more generous. So it's, it's easier for people with mobility impairments to be able to qualify. They don't have to meet the traditional qualification times. Well, once that started to come down the pike, what was that like for you seeing that there, all of a sudden you had this second chance as a way in? Yeah, so that, that's back to the emotional roller coaster. At first, I wasn't sure if I, I, I went through this period. I, this is going to sound strange, but I thought, do I deserve to do this? You know, I have multiple sclerosis. I am on medication for it, but I'm obviously a very functional person with it. I'm a person that runs in the low 330s for a marathon. So I didn't, I felt kind of guilty, you know, which is, you know, and so I talked to some people and they're like, no, no, that's silly. Like you, it's inspiring that you have this and you, you're still running and you're doing these things. So, you know, this is something that's given to people with conditions like you. So I, I, I came to terms with that. And I actually can remember James saying to me, I, I said, well, do, do you think I should, do it? And he said, Kara, if five years from now your disease progresses, which you never know with multiple sclerosis, that's the hardest thing about it is how unpredictable it is. And you are unable to run. What will you, how will you feel if you didn't take this opportunity today? And that's what really made me think this, I need to do this. Like I need to take this opportunity. And I'm so glad I did because having worked with this program now and actually in when I actually was able to fully participate in it like I did 
last week because in October I didn't get to do the full fledged whole morning with everybody like I did in March. Um, but I'm sorry, like I did in April. Um, it's just, it's amazing. It's an amazing group of people to spend time with. And there are other traditional qualifiers like me, and I'm not the only one. It's just, it's nice to be able to take advantage of the program. They allow you an early start, which is really important for people with multiple sclerosis because we're heat intolerant. It's one of my biggest problems with running is how the heat affects me. I can go from a great race to not being able to use my legs very quickly when it heats up. So starting early at Boston, since it's a late start race, is a huge advantage. And the support runner is also very nice as well. So um, everyone in the adaptive athlete program with a mobility impairment is allowed one support runner if they choose. And the visually impaired are allowed two guide runners if they choose. And um, that person um, doesn't have to qualify. And they're not an official Boston finisher, but they are allowed to run the race. They get their medal and they get a T-shirt and all that stuff. So, All right. So all of a sudden, wine glass is out. Boston is back on the table and you're getting ready to run. What was it like um, thinking about this race? You talked about heat intolerance as an issue with multiple sclerosis. Actually, no, let's talk about that first. Before we get into October Boston, which you ran incredibly well, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. Um, let's dive all the way back. All right. So we're not going to talk about running right now. You <laughs> said you were diagnosed in 2010. Would you mind just talking to me about the the process through which you were diagnosed and tested for multiple sclerosis and why and, and just the, the basic history there? So all the way back, 2010, uh, I was, I guess I was about, I guess I was 29 and my oldest was a year old. And my first symptom was I lost the feeling in my right hand. So I bent down to pick up a book to read to my daughter and it felt like my hand was asleep. And I thought that's weird. And it just didn't wake up for eight months. So that was my very first symptom. And the numbness crept up my hand and it went up my arm and down my chest. So it was actually really difficult to get a diagnosis, uh, believe it or not, because I had no family history. I thought I had it, but I had a really hard time convincing the doctors in, you know, I, I'm a military spouse. So we were under the military healthcare, which is, is great in many ways, but in other ways it's, it can be frustrating. So we had a little trouble getting the right tests that I needed. So that was, that was a very, a very hard time, but I did eventually get to a diagnosis and get to, um, eventually to the doctors and the treatment that I needed. But it was a, it was a very long road for me, unfortunately. Uh, not knowing anybody with multiple sclerosis and not having a great support system around that, I sort of bounced between doctors that weren't very experienced with the disease. You know, I was on medicine that wasn't working. So between 2010 and 2013, it would be what I would say were the, some of the darkest days of my life because I was having flare-ups, which the most common type of multiple sclerosis is relapsing remitting, which means you have flare-ups that where something happens. And in my case, it was always different. It was sometimes it was numbness in my hands. Sometimes it was double vision. Sometimes it was 
you know, I couldn't, you know, feel my legs, you know, or th- those types of things. <clears throat> Weakness, ataxia, you know, wobbliness. It it was always different and, and I never knew when it was going to happen and how long it was going to last. And, you know, the the flare-ups can be anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. Sometimes you recover fully from them. Sometimes you keep some symptoms. So it was, it felt like three years of just being very unsure about how that, how my days were going to go. So of course I had very young children. I had my, I ended up in the middle of all of this, getting pregnant with my second daughter. And then finally, after she was born, going on medication. Because uh, you also, you can't start treatment a lot of times until while you're pregnant. So I had some really bad flare-ups while I was pregnant with my youngest. And so it was just, it was a really hard time. Finally, I got to a good doctor that was a specialist and I got on the right medication and that corresponded with around the time that I started running. And I've told this story a lot, but for me running was, I think I say it was, it was a God thing, but I was on the tail end of probably my worst flare up that I had ever had. My youngest was a, was about 10 months old and I lost the feeling from my waist down. Like I couldn't feel my legs and I could still walk, but I couldn't feel them. It was like walking on little peg legs and it was so bad. And they had me on high dose steroids and I really felt like, I just felt like I couldn't live this way. It was, it was, it was a very dark time. And I was literally curled up on my bedroom floor, feeling extremely sorry for myself. And I just felt this urge to get up and go out for a run, which was crazy because I was only just barely regaining the feeling in my legs at this point. This was probably several months of this, of living without being able to feel my legs and I just, I felt like I needed to go for a run. I mean, I think it was, I think it was God speaking to me and telling me to to get up and go for a run because I needed something to, the hardest thing about multiple sclerosis is the loss of control. You feel like you have no control over your body. Like your, your body has turned against you. You don't know when the flare-ups are coming, how long they're going to last, what they're going to do to you, how much permanent damage you might have. It's very scary. So doing something that I felt like I was taking back control was so critical to my emotional recovery. So I got up and I went for a run and I had no idea what I was doing. My husband was a runner. I was like, well, I guess I'm going to run what he runs. I'll go out and run four miles. So I just went out and I can remember my legs felt all weird because when you start to get the feeling back, it's sort of like when your foot's waking up from being asleep, you know, they're kind of tingly and weird, but. And yeah. I like, I, if that, the rare times when that's happened to me and I stand up, I'm, I'm falling down. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not staying vertical for very long. It's funny. You, you get used to the one thing that multiple sclerosis has taught me is the ability of you, your the ability of people to adapt. 
And I've met so many people now. I'm so lucky. I have such a great community of other people with multiple sclerosis. And I frequently offer to mentor people that are newly diagnosed because I feel like it's so important that we talk to each other. But the the person's ability to adapt to situations and work through them is really amazing. So it's, it's, to me, it's still crazy. You, you can still walk and run and do things when you can't really feel your legs. Uh, You know, I know there was that uh, ESPN show a few years back about that high school runner who had MS and she would run and she would lose feeling in her legs and she'd collapse at the finish line. And that seemed, I mean, people were like, Oh my gosh, that, that really is what it's like. You, you can actually still, move even without being able to feel them you get used to you get used to it but um yeah i and i in a lot of ways i feel like running and also finally finding a good doctor and getting on the right medicine all those things in combination in 2013 that saved my life it really did because i couldn't go on living the way that i was living just in fear and uncertainty and being able to feel like I had some power over myself and my body was was so important, so important to me. So that's how running came into my life. Now, you mentioned before that you're taking medication to help you with, with MS. When you started working with a doctor who was experienced in this, has worked with other people, and it could really be a resource to you far more than just from a pharma, pharmacological perspective – What were some of the mental and emotional and even physical things that that you learned in this process 2013 and later that helped you to set the stage for what you've become as an athlete? Yeah, you know, it's – I had never in my 29 years of life experienced real adversity I feel like things had sort of always gone my way. You know, I, I had, you know, I had the, I had gone to college where I wanted, I had the career that I wanted. I, I, things, I won't say they were easy, but I never really faced real challenge. And then that came into my life and it was it was so hard for me to accept that i couldn't control everything and i i had this these huge obstacles to face and at the time i mean it i did not make it look easy i people now are like oh you're so inspiring you should have seen me <laughs> 10 years ago i was a mess you know i was a mess but all of that struggle taught me that I could persevere. And I think that's what draws me to endurance running is the fact that, you know, when you're out there in a marathon, it's so hard and you want to give up, but you, but you don't. It's, it's like a little practice for the hard things that life is going to throw at you. And it just makes me feel so strong to be able to overcome things like that. So, you know, it's it's like anything. These hardships shape you. And it's that, you know, that the fact that I live with it, the fact that I have to go in every four weeks and get the IV put in my arm and get the medicine, you know, that that's shaped me into the person that I am now and the athlete that I am now. Because prior to 2013, I was a 
if you asked anyone that knew me when I was younger, I was a couch potato. I was an absolute couch potato. <laughs> I exercise, not my thing, you know, but now it's every day up and running, you know, goals, you know, it's just, I'm, di- I'm a different, I'm a different person than I was. So, and I think for the better. So. And we should mention, um, you are a doctor yourself. So you're a veterinarian. So when you say like, Hey, I had a feeling this was MS. You're not, <laughs> you're not, you're not simply a WebMD explorer here. <laughs> you, you actually have, uh, uh so some basis here for some of your opinions. And, and I, I want to make sure that we mentioned that. And you mentioned your job before that, you know, you have a, a great job and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up. <laughs> yes. I do love my job. I'm a veterinarian. It's a, I, I'm a very lucky person. I love what I do. I'm happy to go to work every day. So, yeah, dogs don't really get multiple sclerosis, but they get, they have, there are conditions that are kind of like it. Uh, Luckily for us humans, our multiple sclerosis is, um, it's much more controllable. So, and nowadays, as I tell people, we're very lucky. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of new medications on the horizon. I feel that there'll be a cure, hopefully, coming, hopefully in the next 10 years. I don't know. We'll see. But um, nowadays, many of us living with MS, if we're on the right medications and get to the right doctors, we can live, you know, very happy, normal lives. So, and fulfilling. Well, certainly fulfilling, right? I mean, you don't have to be even healthy to live a fulfilling life. There's a lot of people out there who are doing some amazing work, but as are you. That's for sure. And and it also brings color to the it brings context to the story of you petting the dog during the race. We'll be like, what's up with this lady and dogs? She's a veterinarian, people. That's what's going on. Um let's this is not a topic we talk about very often on the show, maybe even once a year, uh, but it, there's no way we can't talk about it now. Uh, you brought, you spoke about how in the depths you felt like God spoke to you and said, you know, you know, let's, you know, let's go for a run. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but were you a religious or spiritual person prior to that? Yeah, I was and still am. And how did how did that experience change your you know your I guess how, you know either how you viewed religion God spirituality and and how you practiced it afterwards because that seems like a paradigm shifting type moment. Yeah, I think I think I think for me, running is very spiritual for me, and. And I, I really feel like that was that was God's way of reaching out to to basically to save me from myself because I was in such a low point, and that's when I realized I just needed to stop and listen and get so get out of the dark place that I was in. So I, I think it just taught me to listen a little bit more, you know, for, for those times when you are being, you know, spoken to by whatever higher power that you believe in. So I, I, I really do feel like that was, that was, a, that was, a, that was a spiritual moment for me. And it, it really did save my life in a lot of ways. Now you mentioned, you described yourself as a couch potato for all of this pre-2010. Once you get the MS, 
diagnosis and you know you you've all the symptoms that are coming from that and the uncertainty that comes with it and you described it really well i can imagine a very rational person being like listen I don't want to tear my body down willingly. It's having a hard enough time as it is. Why would I want to, you know, rip this thing to pieces just to like have it grow, you know, just to have it recover and, and continue uh, down that cycle? Um, I think it's great that God told me to go for a run, but that doesn't mean I'm going to be running two marathons in six weeks. What led you down this marathon path that has obviously been so fulfilling for you? Well, I think that's my personality. Um it started out, you know, I started running and my husband who, you know, I think who probably struggled to really know how to help me during some of those dark times was like kind of grabbed onto that. Like, oh, she's running. She's, she, he signed me up for a half marathon. My first race was a half marathon. It's crazy. And it was the rock and roll. Go Virginia. big or go home, Kara Woody. I know. It was the Rock and Roll Virginia Beach, which anyone that's run that race, it's the hottest dang race in the entire world. Oh, they'd actually, they, oh, it was, no. they had their last year, uh, last year, I think it's, it, it's this, it's, um, Labor Day weekend in Virginia Beach. It's so hot. And of course, here I am with MS. I'm terrible in the heat. I, I didn't even know at that time how terrible it was, but I remember I finished it like 220. I, I felt awful. But I was so I, so accomplished. Of course, now I know we don't run races in heat like that because my, our body doesn't listen, doesn't do, doesn't perform well. But I mean, at the time, I I just remember feeling so accomplished, and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to run some more half marathons. So I ran half marathons for a while. I kind of I I worked with some friends as coaches. I got into really liking to have a coach, and then one of my friends said to me, you know, you could qualify for Boston. And then I thought, well, I guess I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to qualify for Boston because I've always been type A. I've always wanted to have – I I was your typical nerd in school. I loved doing well. I loved getting straight A's. I loved being the one to make the highest grade. I'm sure everyone hated me growing up. But so this was just – it just fit. And then I had – you know, like I said, this was something I could do and strive for and – you know, I, I feel like as we get older, you know, we're out of school and, you know, we get comfortable in our careers. Sometimes we lose that that fun of trying to get the next goal, you know, and running gave that back to me. So I started working on a BQ. I thought, I'm going to qualify for Boston in my first marathon. Totally didn't happen. Of course, it didn't happen. But I ran a respectable, you know, I think it was 350 or something in 2016. And then I thought, well, I'm going to try again. And then, you know, I ran a 347 or something like that. I was sort of, you know, slowly taking time off, not really getting there. And then that's when I finally reached out and got involved with McCurdy Trained. My first coach was Sarah Bishop. Again, I know a frequent podcast uh, visitor here with you. And, you know, she kicked my butt for like a year and I qualified at Richmond in 2018. And so then it became, you know, then I then I started chasing half marathon PRs. And um, then I started working with James about three years ago. I switched over to James and him and I have been a really great fit. He keeps me reeled in. He doesn't let me do stupid stuff like run three marathons in six months or race. I raced two. Yeah, he would never let that happen. Yeah. I raced two, but then I did not <laughs> race the third. So, but 
Um, I'm just kidding. James, James listening to this and he knows that I love him. I'm just kidding around. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. No, I, I actually, I signed up for a 5k next weekend. He's like, yeah, I deleted that off your plan. You're not doing that. I was like, what? He's like, no, I took it off. You're not running a 5k. You just ran a marathon. You're resting. You're recovering. I'm like, oh man. So anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's just a good fit for me and chasing all the, I love chasing goals. I love having things to to do. And I love, I love training. I like training more than racing, which I know some people don't. Not anymore. Not after this Boston experience, you might be just like a serial, like let's go out and have a blast type, type racer now. I know. I keep saying that I may never race Boston again. I I just might run it just for fun every time I go there because it's so much better. (laughs) That is great. Well, let's talk about October Boston, right? So, so you're, you're there, you're going through the program and you have uh, a Boston experience now, which again, which is atypical because it's October. It's the it's obviously not the same energy around the race that we saw last weekend, which was iconic, right? You could I could feel it from afar. And I was talking to a bunch of people about this already who ran Boston. You know, just from afar, you could see that the energy around this race was just different than it had been in the past, and the past had been unbelievable. So you're there in October, though, and you're, you're, you're going there to run. What were the goals heading into the race, and what were the expectations for you going into the race from a weather perspective and making sure that you're going to have the kind of race day experience that, you know, that you'd be able to have physically, like you mentioned before, in terms of, like, the early start and all of that, and, and how were the conditions? So going into the October race, uh, I was going, my goal was around a 320. That's what I was training for. That's what I was in shape for. However, I got shingles two weeks before the race, so which was super fun. It's because this is me. I'm like so lucky. But um, so we we did adjust the goal a little bit based on that because even though I was well enough to run, I hadn't been sleeping really great because shingles is anyone that's had it. It's not very comfortable. Now, does, um, does shingles hit differently for you because of MS and would other people or was it pretty standard? Well, I think it was pretty standard at that point. I've had a really hard time getting over it because of the medicine I'm on because it suppresses my response a little bit to um but I, I think the initial shingles that I was experiencing at that time was pretty typical to what most people do. I mean, it, it's horrible for most people, and it was horrible for me. But it's not its not the kind of thing that I didn't feel like I, I bad, like I couldn't run. I just – I wasn't sleeping well, and I was very uncomfortable, and I was having a lot of back pain. So it wasn't really the ideal situation going into a goal marathon. Are sleep and a healthy back important for running? <sighs> yeah, I know. So I was honestly so happy I could line up on the start line because when I got diagnosed two weeks out, I wasn't sure how it was going to go. Mm, of course, yeah. So um, – it's funny you mentioned the me versus me crop I wore. I that was chosen because it covered up most of the shingles rash because <laughs> it was on my belly, and I thought people were going to think I have leprosy. You know, and it's during COVID, and you don't want people like looking at you and thinking, "Oh my gosh, what does she have?" But, um, so I was still feeling pretty good going into the race, despite all of that. I was feeling like I still felt cardiovascularly pretty sound. I thought I could do it. I'd done some training runs, you know, that were solid. So the weather, uh, for me, I started at 9 a.m. because I had the adaptive athlete early start, which really I think ended up being crucial in this case because the people that started later I know did run into some heat 
uh, issues toward the end of the race. I felt like um, while the heat and humidity wasn't ideal, I did not struggle from a MS standpoint. Um, I stayed... I stayed pretty pretty comfortable as far as that was concerned. So that means my core body temp didn't get too high. So that's that was great. And I totally attribute that to the early start, which is why I probably never run Boston without going through adaptive athletes so I can have that early start because that's so critical. Uh, the You know, I thought the conditions were good, really, for me. Um, and the race went really well for me up into – the Newton Hills. <laughs> so I was right on track for a 320 coming through 16 miles. But when I hit those, when I hit the Newton Hills, I, my legs were just shredded. I didn't realize how shredded they were until I started trying to climb. And then I realized I was in real trouble. So at that point, I thought, well, this is my first Boston. I don't want to go to the well here and not remember it and be have to drop out at the med ten at mile twenty. So I pulled back a little bit and just tried to kind of salvage what I could. But coming off, I mean, I got to the top of Heartbreak Hill, and I remember people saying, if you feel good at the top of Heartbreak Hill, you're set. Well, I did not feel good at the top of Heartbreak Hill. <laughs> I felt terrible. So when I started running downhill, and and I, and I can say this now with confidence because I've run it at an easier pace and experienced how great it is to get to the top of Heartbreak Hill and that downhill, it's awesome if you're not completely shredded. But in October, I was just, my legs were just shot. So it hurt so bad to go downhill. I didn't want to go downhill. Then when I got on flat, I'd lost gravity pulling me down the hill. And then I was miserable going flat. And it just, I felt like the last five miles were uh, like a death march. And then I started cramping. Oh, Carol Woody, you're such a sandbagger. You ran the low 330s. I, I you ran great. I know. It sounds, it sounds crazy. In my mind, it felt so awful. I was walking and running and walking and running. And then I, and I, I was joking to my friends, I don't even remember Brookline because I felt like I blacked out sometime down there. But, but then at some point I looked at my watch and I realized, well, I'm not going to PR, but I can still be Q. And that, that kept me going the last couple of miles. But yeah, in my head, it's so crazy because I ran almost a very similar time in Newport News in March. D- totally different. Never walked, never, never. The wind was terrible, but I felt strong the whole time. And it's the same time. It's almost the same time. It's crazy how different experiences are. But that that positive split in Boston that you get when you're destroyed on those hills, it, it makes you feel just like your race has gone terrible, even though, you know, it really hasn't in actuality by the numbers hasn't gone that terrible. But I just, it was really hard for me to take in that last five miles, which actually is awesome. There are lots of excited, happy people in those last five miles as you run into Boston. That was my favorite part of the race last week was those last few miles so much energy from the crowd but i don't really remember that from october 
All right, let's talk about one last thing before we get going, because you, you wrote about this, and I think it's something that a lot of people have experienced at various points, and that is the idea of having these mixed emotions at the finish line. You described it in your after your October Boston experience of having run well and having achieved something for you was not only finishing the race, but also qualifying for Boston at Boston, which is a huge flex and very, very cool. But at the same time, being disappointed for other reasons with the performance and that juxtaposition of having objectively done something that is great, right? You did run the low 330s. You did qualify for Boston at Boston. Fantastic. And yet you did go in with certain expectations that you were unable to meet. So talk to me about how you've you've navigated those kinds of experiences, because I feel like for the vast majority of people in the vast majority of races, their finish line experience or their post-race experience often can be set in those kinds of terms. Yeah. You know, I was just listening to your podcast, your last one, I think, that you did with the therapist, and it really hit home for me about some of those emotions you get after races. I'll be honest with you. I am a little ashamed of myself, the way that I felt after Boston in in October. I had kind of a pity party. I can remember, you know, calling up James and just being so upset. I'm like, I want to talk about my performance. I want to talk about what went wrong. And he's like, I, you know, Karen, you had shingles two weeks before the race. The weather wasn't ideal. Like, I think it was fine. Like, I, I think you're overthinking this. And I just, I felt so disappointed. And I, looking back at it now, I just, I don't know why. You know, I think sometimes we get so in our heads with our goals and what we think we should be able to run and what we train for. And then when it doesn't happen, we have ourselves a little pity party. And something that really hit home with me about that your guest said was taking a step back and, and really looking at the big picture of what you did. That's what I was missing in October. I couldn't take a step back and say, wow, what I just did was amazing. I was so just mad that I didn't hit that 320 that I wanted. And then that's not why I run. I I don't want to be this person that loses the joy because I don't hit a number, you know? So I think part of the reason that I really pushed forward with running Newport News in March knowing the conditions were terrible, knowing that there was no way I could run in the low 320s, that I would be lucky if I got a PR, you know, which when I was training seemed like it was in the bag, you know, but here we are the day and James is going, this is not a good Kara, heat and wind. You can't overcome both those things. You're, you're not going to be able to run what you're in shape for. You're, you can run the best for that day. And I thought, you know, I, this is crazy. I signed up for this race. I have this whole weekend plan with my daughter. It was her 13th birthday. She was excited. I'm not, I'm going and I'm going to run this race. I'm going to use all the things that I, that I trained for the ways that I know that I need to adjust. I'm going to run as strong as I can. And I am going to be happy no matter what the time is when I cross the finish line. And I did that. I was able to do that in March when I, when I ran that race, I, I crossed, it was 332. 
It it was not the time I trained for. I but I I didn't care because I knew I really fought so hard. I felt strong, and th- you know, there's only so much you can do against a 20 mile per hour headwind. You know, and the first warm day, you know, give yourself a break. And I felt so much more emotionally at peace with that performance than I did in October, and that that was a win for me. And then going on, then going and running six weeks later, Boston for fun, I feel like it's been a much better year for me, even though it seems like maybe I'm right where I started. Maybe I haven't gotten anywhere, but for me, I feel like I have gotten somewhere because, you know, I'm able to accept that the day, a a time on a clock doesn't make a runner. You know, a runner is made by all the work that you do, all the days that you get up when it's cold and it's dark or if it's hot or if it's raining or if it's snowing and you're going out, that's what makes a runner. Not some time on a clock, not saying, oh, I ran a 3.22 or a 3.21 or a 3.18 or whatever. I mean, you know, I'm the same person no matter what. So I being able to come to, to grips with that, to be at peace with that has been important for me this year. Look at you. The type A self abandoned going. This is that was beautiful. You, you can said learn that so new well. things Thank after 40. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I hear you. I am two months older than you, Kara, and I'm I'm still trying to learn the lessons that you just so prolifically expounded upon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is an absolute blessing, and, and it really is an honor to have you. Oh, thank you so much. This was fun. I feel like we talked about all kinds of stuff, but. <laughs> This was fun. Kara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Man, this is going to be a legendary episode. No question about it. Uh, I think this is going to be one of those ones that people will be referencing for a long time in my DMs and telling me about how much they loved this show. How can you not? Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. Just representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.